The first reading is from Psalm 37, starting at verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The second reading is from Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Lord, I thank you that Gareth can speak to us now, and I pray that you would speak to us through what he says and open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Amen. 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 Uh, thank you, Rachel. As uh, Steve alluded to earlier, this is the second uh, in our series uh, about Christian spirituality. 
where we're basically looking at um, four, four different New Year's resolutions, as it were, over the course of January, four different uh, resolutions that you might want to uh, consider committing to, that we might want to consider committing to as a Christian community as we seek to follow Jesus in 2020. But these New Year's resolutions are not so much tasks that we need to complete or tick box exercises, rather they're more attitudes that we might want to adopt in our discipleship. And so today, having heard last week about what it means to be human in our posture towards Jesus, this week we're thinking about what it means to be truthful. When I was growing up in church, uh, early days of youth group, my uh, youth leader's favorite memory verse that she was very keen uh, for us to learn, mark, and inwardly digest was John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think partly she was very keen on that because uh, she was a Pentecostal, and she really liked the idea of us giving it everything when we were singing. And I think that is one way of reading the verse. I think that is a, a perfectly good way of reading the verse. But I'm not sure it captures every essence of what it means to be truthful and to worship God in spirit and in truth. I wonder if it has a little bit more to do with what Steve was just talking about now uh, as he described freedom in Christ. It's maybe more about letting the truth of who God is and what that means for us seep into our very being. It seems to me, and I was reflecting on this in preparation for today, that in what is often described as a post-truth culture, that actually truthfulness as a character trait is really at a premium, but also something that people really value. Uh, and particularly, my generation is obsessed with the notion of authenticity. But often, the way that we think about authenticity or truthfulness is really um, relates to this notion of being true to myself. Actually, we talk a lot about the idea that truthfulness is about really being true to myself, to who I am. And right now, there are no shortage of blogs that you can access saying that the only resolution you really need to make this new year is to be true to yourself. Or you could watch pretty much any Hollywood movie, and most of the time, one of the main morals or messages that comes out is, if only we can access a little bit of authenticity and find a way of expressing it, then true happiness will be us as we get to be our authentic selves. And sometimes a little bit of that narrative seeps into the way in which we talk about truthfulness in the Christian life. Uh, we heard Psalm 37, and Psalm 37 verse 4 is one of those classic memeable verses, but we tend to focus on this idea that, hey, be yourself and God will give you the desires of your heart. But it also strikes me that that verse uh, has a first half which says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the desires don't come before the delight. And it seems to me that maybe, just maybe, being true to ourselves isn't enough. It isn't going to cut it. Because if I'm 
truly going to base my life around being true to myself, then I'm going to be disappointed. Because often myself is something of a mess. If I'm just truly being myself, then actually, that's only going to lead to me messing up. But also, also, if I place the weight and burden and my hopes and dreams and expectations on trying to live up to my sense of authentic self, then actually, one day, if, and probably one day very soon, that's actually going to turn out that my, the, the, my sense of self is not strong enough or beautiful enough to cope with my hopes and dreams and expectations. So there, disappointment lies. So the question is, what does it mean to truly step into truthfulness in a way that is really going to equip us in our discipleship? And it strikes me that it not only involves delighting in the Lord, it not only involves worshipping in spirit and in truth, but it maybe involves being invited to step into the truth of who God has created us to be for his glory. It's not simply about living your best life, but about being the person that God made you to be, saved you to be, and wants you to be for his glory. So what does that look like? Because that seems maybe a little bit more complicated than simply being true to myself and my whims at any given point. And so with a particular focus on our gospel reading from Mark chapter 10 and the two stories within that, I want to discuss this morning four ways radical four rather than three, four ways uh, in which God invites us to step into truthfulness, truthfulness in our relationship with him and in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And so the first one is, first and foremost, as we set out on this journey uh, of committing to be truthful for Jesus, the first invitation is to be honest. Basically, it begins with being honest. In our gospel reading, Jesus asks a question, and he asks it twice, both in verse 36 and in verse 51. And he asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And I wonder, as we look ahead to 2020, some of us will already be reeling because we've broken our resolutions days and days ago. A question that it's worth asking God right now is, God, or, or, or rather a question that it's worth knowing that God is asking us right now is, in 2020, what do you want me to do for you? And I love that Jesus asks this question. I particularly love that he asks this question to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, or blind Bartimaeus, as he was known. Blind Bartimaeus the beggar comes to Jesus and Jesus feels the need to go, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Now, to me, and probably to all the onlookers, it was fairly obvious what Bartimaeus needed Jesus to do for him. And yet, for some reason, Jesus decides to ask him that question anyway. And I think that's because fundamentally, as we look at what it means to walk with Jesus in truth... He invites us to be honest about our desires, about our longings, about the thing that we need him to do for us. Firstly, we're invited to be honest. And we're invited to be honest about our brokenness, even when it might seem fairly obvious. 
Now, it might be that when you hear the question, uh, and when you imagine God asking you, what do you want me to do for you? What is it that you seek? Actually, you struggle and you go into something of an existential crisis, not because there is obvious brokenness that you're trying to hide, but because genuinely do you don't know the answer to that question. Sometimes that's even more difficult and vulnerable than we, if we have an obvious need. If you hear Jesus ask you today, what do you want me to do for you? And you think, gosh, I don't know. If you hear the promise of the psalm that when you delight in God, he will fulfill the desires of your heart, and you think, I'm not sure if I could even locate or discern, let alone describe to you clearly today, God, what the desires of my heart are. Well, what are we supposed to do then? Well, I think that's why in this psalm, the invitation to uh, know the desires of our heart comes, not just with this invitation to delight in God, but also in verse 3 with the invitation to trust in God, and in verse 5 to commit your way to God, and in verse 7 to be still before God and wait patiently. If you're here today and actually you think, well, I love the idea that maybe God would give me the desires of my heart, but quite frankly, Gareth, and quite frankly, God, I don't know what I desire. I don't know what I want. I want to know what I want, but I don't know what I want. Then what does that mean? What does that look like? What are we to do? Well, at this point, we're, in, we're invited to delight in God, to commit to him, to walk with him, to wait patiently for him, to locate our desires in relation to who he is and what he's done and what he is about. And this is probably, on paper and on the ground, going to look a little bit different depending on your personality type. I am a raging extrovert. And so I cannot discern anything. I cannot figure anything out about what I think or about how I feel unless I externally process. Much to many of my friends and relatives' despair. But that's just how I am. And actually, for many of you, if you are longing to know what you actually want, if what you're longing for is the longing, then find a friend, somebody to walk with you on the journey, Chat with them, pray with them, figure it out, verbally process it, delight in the Lord together, seek his will together, and there you may find that actually you could locate the thing that God has put on your heart. And maybe, just maybe that sounds like your idea of a nightmare, well then, I'm probably not the best person to give you advice, but I presume it involves going to a woods with a journal and writing some stuff down, but... (laughs) You can probably find an introvert that will give you some actual authoritative advice on that. Now, of course, within our gospel reading, we find two brothers, James and John, that haven't had any trouble locating the desire of their heart. But I'm not sure that they came to their question or their request because they spent much time delighting together in God's presence, committing to his way, or waiting patiently for him to reveal his heart to them. What I imagine has happened is that James and John have seen and are seeking to seize an opportunity. Because the timing of their question really in the context of Mark is really weird because it comes slightly after Jesus has, for the third time within about two chapters, predicted that his destiny is to die, to give himself Uh, as a ransom for many. 
and then to rise again. And there have been several episodes where Jesus has predicted this and got into either an argument or some kind of awkward conversations, either with Peter or with his other disciples about what that means, A, for Jesus, and B, for them. And there's this sense that after some of these conversations, and you get the impression, one commentator suggests, that Peter's a little bit out of the way now, that James and John see an opportunity and seek to seize it. And they go, you know what, now is the time that if we get Jesus on his own, we might be able to chat to him, and we might be able to find ourselves in the inner circle. They were already part of the three that Jesus took up the mountain, but this could be our opportunity to book our ticket to the right and left hand of Jesus at his glory. They had no, desire, they had no trouble locating the desire of their heart because James and John were ambitious, James and John were ambitious people. Now, it might be that you hear them and you read this story and you join with the other ten disciples in being indignant and outraged and confused as to how they could ask such a bewildering question, how, having spent time with Jesus, that could possibly be their aim. But I'm going to be honest with you. I am a really ambitious person, naturally. And so I see them and go, you know what? I don't know. But if I'd spent time with Jesus and if I was one of his disciples and if I was one of the three, that there wouldn't be something within my heart, twisted though it is, not worthy to be true to myself about, that might not lead me to have a similar conversation. I'm not sure that my desire to do well, my desire uh, to seek approval, to be approved of, to seem impressive, to achieve, I'm not sure that even if I was a disciple of Jesus with him there, that that wouldn't manifest itself in a similar question. But what I find interesting is that even though this is what's to come, even though they're about to ask a question that is blatantly broken, Jesus still, presumably knowing that's what they were going to ask, asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Because I think that whether we are broken like Bartimaeus, whether we are desperately unsure of what we desire in the first place, or even if actually we know that our desires are potentially negative or come out of a place of ambition, either way, Jesus invites us to be honest. Because actually, it's only when those two disciples were able to be honest and name their ambition that Jesus is able to speak into their situation but also to transform it. And what I find fascinating as well is that Jesus says to them, well, you don't know what you're asking because one way of reading this is that the people that will eventually be on his right and on his left side are the thieves on the cross because that's when Jesus will go to his glory. But there is a sense in which actually... Weird as this sounds, James, uh, James and John's ambitions actually do get fulfilled because in Acts 12, James goes on to be one of the first martyrs. He goes on to die for his faith. And according to church tradition, John is imprisoned on Patmos and he will later be martyred. And so actually what happens is that Jesus takes their ambition, he reframes it, but actually he's able to transfer it to the glory of God. And so... Firstly, the first step, if we want to walk in truth, 
however broken or ambitious or anything in between we might feel, the first step, the first invitation is to be honest, to be honest. Now, depending on where you are on that, the next two steps may look a little bit different or the next key invitation may be a bit different. But if, like me, your inclination is towards the ambitious, the next invitation, after being honest, is to be humble, to be humble. The rest of the disciples, it says, are indignant. And we can read this and think, oh, okay, well, maybe they've just got the message a bit more than James and John have. Um, But actually, it's only a chapter earlier that after Jesus had predicted his death, the disciples say nothing because they're scared uh, of, of disagreeing with him. But then Jesus catches them all, all 12 of them, having an argument on the road about which one is the greatest. That's only a chapter ago. So it seems to me unlikely that their indignation is indeed righteous. They're probably indignant because James and John, they think, have jumped the gun and snuck in ahead of them and got the question with Jesus before they have. And that's why I think Jesus gathers them all around and he says, we live in a world where people's way of manifesting ambition and authority is to lord their power and prestige over people in lower, uh, in lower social positions and in weaker states. But verse, 30, verse 43, Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great amongst you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And there's a similar uh, message which Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 3, where he says... Um, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count other people as more important than yourself. Now, given what I've admitted to you um, about ambition, and and that's placed in my heart, what I'm sharing now may just be me sort of uh, like an extrovert, externally processing some of my own reflection and wrestling with you, and so go away and weigh it up. But one thing that I do find noticeable about Paul's words is that the contrast is not between ambition itself but between selfish ambition and humility. And the opposite of ambition isn't humility, it's passivity. And the opposite of humility is not to be, uh, is not, or or humility doesn't equate to being passive or to not having any passion or zeal or sense of desire to use your gifts in any direction. In fact, in Greek, there's a difference between the word for selfish ambition and the word that's just used for ambition. Maybe that's just because I I am uh, ambitious, but I think there's an important distinction. And I think it's important as well to realize that humility isn't necessarily what we sometimes think it is. There's a difference between humility, which Jesus calls us to, which Paul encourages the church towards, and modesty. There's a difference between humility and simply thinking down on ourselves. Sometimes we think that the solution uh, to selfish ambition or to any notion of ambition that we're scared of in the world is to talk ourselves down or to bury our gifts in the sand. But I'm not sure that that's what God calls us to. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking uh, thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. 
And Tim Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, picks up on this idea and expands it. If we were to meet somebody truly humble, truly uh, gospel humble, the thing we would remember from meeting them is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I am in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. True humility means that even the most ambitious person can have their ambition tweaked and transformed so that its end is not their own self-aggrandizement, but the glory of God. And actually, um, in a book to try and cure myself, uh, I'm reading On Ambition by Emma Ineson at the moment, which I got from Ian's uh, bookstore. He's not even... Is he, is he here for me to give him a plug? Oh. Um, this book, called Ambition by Emma Ineson, who's a bishop up in Carlisle now, she points out that one of the most beautiful and profound portraits of an ambitious person having their ambition transformed is Paul. Paul was somebody that was fiercely ambitious, but in the wrong direction, and so it led to destructive behavior and to, and to people, Christians, literally getting killed. But when he met Jesus, when his life and his heart was transformed, his ambition was turned around so that in Romans 15, his ambition, his ambition was that all would hear the good news of Jesus and the gospel. And Jesus was fiercely ambitious. He had a goal in mind, and he was going to accomplish and achieve that. But his ambition had nothing to do with himself. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, making himself nothing, even taking the form of a servant, um, even unto the point of death, even death on a cross, or as verse 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Be honest, be humble, but also be hopeful. Be hopeful. We see how Jesus transforms in truth the situation of James and John and where that leads but he also transforms the situation of blind Bartimaeus. And he brings hope into his situation. There are a few people that may have had less reasons for obvious hope than blind Bartimaeus. His physical ailment, his socioeconomic standing. There he was in the middle of a crowd on the cloak, seemingly invisible. But I love this. When he was, sitting, he was sitting at the roadside begging, but verse 47, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And even then, when hope starts to stir in Bartimaeus that maybe, just maybe, his story wasn't going to end the way that everybody thought it did, it then maybe seems like his hope is going to get quashed because the crowd tell him, shut up, shut up. 
But still, hope is defiant, even in his situation. And he cries out again. He cries out again. Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in verse 49, Jesus stops and says, call him. And suddenly the crowd are like, oh, cheer up, mate. It could, uh, it could go well for you now. Verse 51, Jesus asks, what do you want to, me to do for you? The blind man responds, Rabbi, I want to see. It just strikes me that there is something about defiant hope which we're invited into in the way that Bartimaeus acts. Even when all of society said that his place was where he was, where he was on that cloak on the roadside, even when the crowds try and get him away from Jesus and, and shout and tell him to shut up, there's a hope that stirs within him. And that is the hope that leads to him getting before Jesus and being healed. In our psalm, in verse 9, it says, For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Hope in the Lord comes before and leads to healing. Hope in the Lord leads to the inheritance. Hope in the Lord leads us into a place of truthful relationship with Jesus beyond which we could never ask or imagine. Yes, be honest. Yes, be humble. But have hope. Have hope. Because Jesus is truth. And the truth will set you free. And through that truth and through that hope, there is not only the transformation of ambition, but healing for even the biggest forms of brokenness. And finally, there's an invitation to come home. To come home. This is less obvious maybe in the text, but I felt the Spirit uh, stirring me that this was where we wanted to land today. Even though the story ends in verse 52 with Jesus saying, Go, what Bartimaeus does, having been healed and having received his sight, is follow Jesus along the road. And in doing so, he leaves behind the cloak that had represented his previous brokenness. And there's this sense in which not only is Bartimaeus healed physically, but in that moment he finds a home. And all woven through Psalm 37 is this notion of the land, this notion that there is a home in which we're invited to a home in which we're called to when we find the truthfulness of our identity in Jesus. And taking from Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son, you could maybe describe or define or sum up the gospel as the call to come home. Um, I'm not very good uh, at Greek, so I often don't do a good job of explaining Greek words in sermons, but uh, I'm going to take a rare opportunity to use a word from one of the languages that I do speak, Welsh. And um, there's this word in Welsh which uh, God put on my heart that you may have heard. Welsh people love to, love to talk about this word because there isn't an English equivalent, or not quite. Um, and it's a word called hiraith. Hiraith. I don't know if you've ever heard a, a Welsh person kind of talk about this. Um, Sometimes it's translated as longing. Sometimes it's translated as homesickness. But it doesn't quite capture what it means. 
The word hirith is this notion of longing for a home we never quite have been to or aren't quite sure exists. It's longing for something that we can't quite grasp or get our head around. And I think that that describes something very fundamental about the human heart and the human experience. And I think that's why, if we want to truly be free in truth, that can't simply look like being true to myself, because actually, in my own heart and in my own self, home is not a possibility. I'm just going to be grasping at a place that I think exists, but I can't quite get to. But in Jesus, and in the truth that he has that sets us free, there is a home, a real home, a place that we can be and belong, a place that we can be honest, a place that even our brokenness can be healed and our most broken character expressions can be transformed for his glory. So be honest, be humble, have hope, because today, whoever you are and wherever you found yourself standing, or whatever your answer to that initial question of what is it that you want me to do for you is, Jesus would call you home. My favorite prayer, um, John shared this at the 9 a.m., is a prayer from St. Augustine, which says, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless, seeking after truth that we can't quite grasp, seeking after a home that we can't quite find in our own strength. But friends, here is a home that we're invited to come to today. This church family is a little glimpse of that home here on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever the answer to that question was for you today, the invitation that I want to leave you with is come home. Know the truth of who you are and whose you are, or who you are and whose you can be today. Come home. Come home. Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. So today, friends, let's find our rest in him.